Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Perrat, the author of Blood Rose Angel, Book 3 in the Bone Angel Trilogy. From Eastern Massachusetts during the U.S. Civil War, we are diving back to an event even more devastating and of much wider scope. Eloise, the wife of Raoul Stonemason, has grown up in a family of women known for their healing powers. Her mother died in childbirth, leaving her twin sister to deliver Eloise by cesarean section. Eloise has never known the identity of her father. Yet she has inherited from her mother an angel made of bone, a talisman reputed to have magical properties. In 14th century France, these four factors, her family's gift for healing, her unnatural birth, her inability to nurse from her own mother, and her possession of a talisman that may originate in either heaven or hell, set Eloise apart from her fellow villagers in Lucie-sur-Vienne. That different does not mean better becomes clear in chapter 1. The year of our Lord, 1334, Lucie Survienne. Christ's toenails, ignore him, Eloise, he chided as I glared at Drogon, sauntering toward us through the marketplace stalls and customers. Milk, thieving bastard, Drogon chanted along with his equally loathsome brothers. Drogon ain't never walked right because you stole his milk, the oldest brother said jabbing a filthy finger at me. The third brother nodded at Drogon's legs, bowed as a barrel hoop. That's what our mamma reckons. There was no thieving, I cried, sick of the same old taunts. I'd suffered for as many of my eleven years as I could recall. My aunt paid your mamma well for that milk. My aunt Issa had told me that since I was born one moon early, and of course because my mother was dead, I couldn't suckle. She'd recently midwife Sarah, Drogon's mother, and had given her coin for some of her milk, dipping it into my mouth from her spindle end. My mom couldn't refuse your aunt, Drogon glanced at Isa. You were afraid she'd curse her with some potion or spell, like she poisoned our papa with that liniment for his bad knees. We're sick to vomiting of this story, Drogon Isa said. I'm sorry your father died, but it was no liniment of mine killed him. And a hundred times I've told you, your legs are bent because your mamma refused to listen to me and swaddle you properly. Nothing to do with Eloise drinking your milk. Mergen's in your family, Drogon said, ignoring Issa. You even killed your own mother when you got birth. Everyone in Lucie-sur-Vienne reckons you was born against nature. A non-born what God didn't want to live, said the taverner's daughter, Rizend, skipping by with her friend, Jacot. And now, please join me in welcoming Lisa Perra. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. Oh, hi, Carolyn, and thanks for having me. It's lovely to talk to you. Uh, before we get started, I should mention that Lisa and I have been friends on social media for some time. We met on the Internet Book Club site, Goodreads, where within a year we each had a novel selected by the Historical Fictionistas group as a featured author group read. Uh, in my case, the novel was The Golden Links, and in hers, Spirit of Lost Angels, the first of the Bone Angel trilogy that Blood Rose Angel completes. But what really drew us together was discovering that each of us, independently, had published her books through a writer's cooperative. In my next interview, I'll talk about my co-op with fellow member Courtney J. Hall. 
But today we will discuss not only how Lisa became a novelist and her Bone Angel trilogy, but her cooperative, Triskeel Books. It's a new model in publishing, and I hope listeners, especially if they are also writers, will be interested in hearing about how it works. Uh, but first, Lisa, let's talk about you. Uh, you grew up in Australia, like Eloise, mm-hmm. uh, and her aunt. You worked as a midwife. That is, Eloise is not from Australia, but yes. <laughs> she did work as a midwife. Uh, and now, <laughs> that would be exciting in 1348 if she were living in Australia. Exactly. And <laughs> uh, now you live in the French countryside, uh, like Eloise. <laughs> what were the crucial stages in your journey towards writing historical fiction? Well, I came to France over 20 years ago and, in fact, my midwifery and nursing qualifications weren't recognised here. So I had young children at the time and I wasn't really sure what to do. So I did a degree in French and then I sort of fell into English teaching, which I didn't really like at all. Uh, I'd always been a voracious reader and I had entertained thoughts of creative writing even oh long ago, before my teenage years. And then the idea to write a book suddenly popped into my head. I think it was in about the year 2000. So I did an online creative writing course, wrote loads and loads of short stories. Then I tried the big novel. Well, my first two attempts, they were both contemporary novels and they will definitely never, ever be published. But I look on, on them as kind of part of the learning curve uh, and I'd say it was probably living in a historical French village that made me try my hand at historical fiction. Uh, and this is where I seem to find my voice, if that doesn't sound too uh, strange. <laughs> and also I'm passionate about history, so I think it's no surprise that I ended up writing about it, in fact. And once you started, uh, you took this online writing course, but how did you um, get from there to having a publishable novel? Well, basically there are a lot of modules, and it was this was, oh, gosh, 2000, the year 2000, so 15 years ago now. And because I had these three young children, I couldn't do it very, the course very quickly, so it took me about five times as long as everybody else to finish it. And basically they were just teaching modules. So really it was a do-it-yourself course. And I just learned about different forms of creative writing and and uh, fiction and non-fiction and uh, basically trained myself, I think, writing short stories and, you know, feeling my way around, le- trying to learn the craft basically. Um, at that stage I joined an online writing group and um, I actually, so where I had a lot of support and critiques, and then I got an agent. Actually, the, the second of those novels got, I got an agent. And uh, so I worked with her for a few years, but she was never able to, to sell that book. And uh, she really was the one that suggested maybe I try my hand at writing something historical because I talked to her about my interest in history. So that, that's really where that came from, the, the historical fiction idea stemmed back from there. And, and the, the idea really just to write this trilogy came from there. It just popped into my head uh, a story and, and then once I'd finished it, there were two more to come. So I, it, did, it wasn't planned, you know, it didn't 
uh, didn't start out as a trilogy. It just kind of came into its own along the way. <laughs> so that was Spirit of Lost Angels, that first historical novel? That, that was, yes, yes. Just it came from a walk uh, around the village where I live one, one Sunday afternoon. There's uh, 15 crosses in this village, each one symbolising something different. And one of the crosses is down on the riverbank and it's a memorial for two children that drowned in the river in 1717. They were four and five years old. So, of course, I was quite intrigued by this inscription and I went up to the local historical society and there's not a lot of information about them, but they're buried in the next village from this one. And so I just wanted to give these children a name and identity and a village and I wanted to know their story or invent their story because there really wasn't one. So that's really where that came from. I wondered if they drowned accidentally or, or if someone had, you know, if it was an accident or if it was even murder. Uh, I didn't know. So um, that's why I made up a story. <laughs> and it's a great story. Um, so what led to the formation um, of Triskel Books? Well, as I said, I joined this online writing group in, I think it was 2009, and I made some great writing pals. We, you know, we read, and we, we still do it, we read and critiqued each other's work and generally cheered each other on. Uh, and then towards the end of 2011, three of us were in much the same boat. We, we, each, we all had literary agents who were unable to find a home for our work. So we got together and decided that we'd form an author collective, uh, just a, a group, you know, the three of us. We'd publish our own books, but we'd give each other mutual support for things like the manuscript and the business and marketing aspects of writing also. So there were three of us in the beginning, three original members. There's myself, based in France. Uh, Another one, Gillian Hamer, she's based in Birmingham. She writes historical crime novels based around the uh, North Wales. And then there's Jill Marsh, JJ Marsh, who's based in Zurich in Switzerland. And she's writing a crime series, uh, the Beatrice Stubbs European Crime Series. Uh, and then sometime later, we had two more members join. One of those was J.D. Smith. She's based in the Lake District, and she writes historical fiction about ancient Syria. But Jane's also a designer, so she takes care of all the design aspects of the collective, uh, like the website and promotional materials. And she also does all our individual websites and book covers and, and the formatting. And Katrina Troth also joined us. She's based just outside London, and she's written two books which have themes of uh, kind of identity and childhood memory uh, against the background of, of true 20th century events. Uh, anyway, all, all the books are on the, the Triskill website, and but the central core of the five of us will always stay that way. I don't think that will change. Uh, but from, from time to time, we, we do take on an associate. Uh, but it, it's a lot of work. You know, uh, it's, it's already a lot of work, as you know, probably, from your own uh, author cop with five of us, uh, getting each other's book up to scratch. So any more, and it, it really, you know, it's a really big workload. 
So how does the cooperative work? What are the advantages and disadvantages of being in this particular arrangement? Well, as I said, firstly, we read and critique each other's work at least once. Each book is read uh, several times usually, and before each book is published, we all have to agree that it's, it's good to go, that it has reached the same standards as traditional publishing, uh, both in terms of content and packaging. Uh, so once, once we have the, the novels up to standard, we work together to share all the marketing tasks uh, over all our different social media. Uh, each one of us kind of brings something different to the group. You know, someone's good at finances, another one knows about marketing, someone else is good at technology or another has organisation skills. We, you know, we each use our, our individual skills to benefit the group. Uh, financially, <coughs> excuse me, each one, each person keeps their own royalties and we each pay for our own actual book publishing. And then on top of that, we all contribute to a joint account for things like book launches, parties, promotional materials, things like that, things we pay for together. Um, I think, uh, well, the advantages, are that, you know, they're, they're just only advantages as far as I can see. We have the advantage of going it alone together, really, the freedom to write what you want to your own deadlines, but with the support of this invested group to achieve the best possible book. Um, and, of course, we help each other share the tasks in the on the business side of writing, which are kind of quite daunting on, on your own. Uh, for, for disadvantages, I can't really see any because for the moment it's working so well for us all. We're all working hard for ourselves, for each other, and for the Triskill brand as well. And I'd actually be quite lost without them these days. You know, I'd feel as if I was drifting alone in those <laughs> swirling waters of indie publishing. So, uh, no, I, I really, you know, can't see any disadvantages for the moment. Hmm. So would you try a more traditional publishing or a hybrid publishing if you had the chance? Uh, strictly traditional, I'm not sure anymore, Carolyn. Due, due to the state of traditional publishing these days, what was once the dream for me, because it was for, for a long time, it's no longer the dream. It, it no longer exists. Uh, and having the freedom and control of indie publishing, I don't think I'd be ready to give that up very easily. It's, it's you know, I really enjoy having that freedom to write what I want uh, you know, to to choose my own book cover, you know, to work on my own blurb and description, all all the aspects I I feel I'm in control and, and I, I you know I would find that difficult to hand that over to someone someone else. Um, that that said, hybrid publishing, you know, is is definitely a consideration. Uh, I would certainly welcome an agent who could sell the foreign language rights to my books, that's for sure, because quality translations are really something I'm not able to fund myself at this point in time. Uh, so really, I think the way that, because how things have changed over the last 10 years, I'm, I definitely would not uh, chase after a traditional publishing contract any anymore. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I feel I have very mixed feelings myself because I put a lot of work into Five Directions Press, and you do, yes, yeah. yes. And so let's get to your books. Um, although Spirit of Lost Angels, uh, Volsangal, and Blood Rose Angel together make up a trilogy, the stories are not told in sequence, and each one really stands alone. So. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, the first two, and then we'll get to Blood Rose Angel. Okay. Um, well, Spirit of Lost Angels is the first one, and this takes place in the years leading up to and during the French Revolution. Uh, Wolf Angel takes place during the Second World War, uh, and, and Blood Rose Angel, although published third, is actually the earliest one. Uh each story can be read as a standalone, uh, but I think it would be better to read the latest book, uh, Blood Rose Angel, last. Um, I say this because the, the mystery of the Bone Angel talisman, which is the link between the women of each story across the generations and across the ages, is resolved in this last book. And I, I don't think it would spoil the first two, but I think it would be better to be left to, to to discover that last, if you know what I mean. But, you know, it really doesn't matter. They, they can actually be, be read in any order. Uh, so anyway, sorry, the, the first in the series, Spirit of Lost Angels, basically deals with this, this peasant family who symbolise the role of the people uh, during the French Re Revolution as opposed to the aristocracy. Uh, the, the the same family carries over into the second book, Wolf's Angel, which is set in the same village with people who, the same family who live in the same farmhouse, but during the World War II Nazi occupation of the village. Uh, the, the heroine gets caught up on both sides of the coin, both with a German officer and also with the French resistance. But this story is is based on a on a very tragic true war crime that occurred in a village uh, a few hours away from here. Uh, um, <laughs> how did you I mean, how did you pick these particular time periods? And especially since we're moving now into talking about Blood Rose Angel, why the 14th century? Well, basically, I used quite dramatic historical events for the first two books: the French Revolution and World War Two. And since writing those first two books, I've become intrigued, I think, very interested in the medieval period. Uh, so setting the story in the midst of the Black Death seemed an obvious choice, another very dramatic uh, backdrop. And, of course, the enigma of the Bone Angel pendant had to be resolved in this final book, so it kind of made sense to set the story in a time before the other two. Uh, you know, and, and to be truthful, it was also a chance for me to learn about the, the medieval period because, uh, as you know, you learn a lot during your, your research for a, for a novel. And uh, because I was interested in this period, I wanted to learn more about it. So it actually gave me a chance to delve right into this, this period in history as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, the book starts, as we heard in my introduction, in 1334. Um, Eloise is a child of 11, and when we meet her, the other children are mocking her, and I indicated some of the reasons in my introduction. But I think you have another passage that explains, in part, how she fits into the, the life of the village, which is 
what I'd like to, this is the, the opener that tells us where she is at the start of the book. So can we talk about that for a bit? Sure. Okay. Um, well, Heloise is definitely burdened with guilt for her mother's death and this shapes her life. She's a non-born and a bastard. So, of course, to be fatherless had its own stigma, as we all know, but to be born by caesarean section and to actually survive it makes the villagers very suspicious of her. Uh, they were already wary of Eloise's aunt and her mother, the, the dead mother, who were twin midwives and bastards themselves, because while the midwife was often respected and revered in those times, she was also often suspected of practicing dark arts and witchery. She was really someone not to be crossed. So, you know, you had to be careful when you're around her, what you said to her. You didn't, you know, people lived in fear that she might cast a spell on them. Uh, and that the midwife actually had um, the powers to uh, either safely deliver your child or, or to, to, you know, that to make it be born stillborn or deformed or whatever she chose, you know, they, they had these um, kind of suspicion. They, they was, people were suspicious of the midwife and the healer woman. So Eloise has always existed kind of on the outskirts of village life, both physically because their house is on the outskirts of the village and metaphorically. And I think this is what makes her even more determined to prove her worth to the villagers. Um, if, if you like, I have the, the, a short reading about um, how she was born by caesarean section. This is uh, her aunt is telling her this about this, telling her this story of her own mother right at the beginning. And uh, this is where Eloise realizes that uh, she was given this life. Her mother lost her life for her to live, and that you know she wanted to make. Uh, she, she wanted to make that worthwhile. She wanted to, to put that bloodshed, if you like, to good use. And that's when she decided she'd take the vow to follow in her mother's footsteps for in her healing and midwifery footsteps. So, um, yes, proceed it. Okay, all right. So, uh, it's only, only a few minutes. Uh, Ava woke moaning and clawing at her temples. I started rubbing lavender and rose oil across her brow. Then her eyes rolled back till all I could see was the whites. No colour, just all white. How horrible. Worse than horrible, Eloise. By that time I was screaming, begging the Blessed Virgin to spare my twin, as close to me as my own soul. I'd always thought we'd go together, you see. I couldn't imagine living if Ava was gone. She exhaled a long breath and looked down at the river at the mountains standing upside down in the water. The devil crept inside Ava, Isa said, and started up a shaking as an earthquake might splinter the earth when Jur was in a fury. My mind was spinning. What physic could stop the brain spasms? A potion of dandelion roots? St. John's wort seeds eaten for 40 days? I didn't have 40 days, Eloise, not 40 seconds. All I could do was kneel beside her, and watched the falling sickness snatch my sister to the dark side. I didn't know what to say, so I just curled my hand over hers. There wasn't a second to grieve, Isa said. I had to free the unborn and baptise it before it died too, or ours would devour its soul. 
I didn't ponder, knew I'd lose my nerve if I did. So I swiped a wine-soaked cloth over her belly, made the sign of the cross and sliced an arc clear across Ava's womb. Then I unfurled the tiniest baby from the gaping red darkness. At first I couldn't look at that limb underbaked non-born, she said, dragged into the world against every force of nature. But then I couldn't resist. And you know what? That little girl seemed too lovely to be doomed. Pale wisps of hair, eyelids veined like a butterfly's wing, fingers curling like flower petals at witch light. I gave Isa a small smile as the sun sank onto the rim of the hill in a brilliant orange rind. I laid her between her mother's legs, Isa said, and thought I glimpsed a movement, an eyelid blinking, a fluttering so slight I could have imagined it. But it was no shadowy trick, for that girl screwed up her face so tight and bawled so loud she almost deafened me. I was bawling by then too, she went on. Tears of relief and wonder. So I swaddled you, lavishing thanks on St. Margaret for this miracle, on Ava for not making an angel of you, for giving me the daughter, the midwife apprentice I'd never dared hope for. Isa was quiet, her dark eyes filling with tears, but only one leaked down her cheek. The rest she sniffed away. Like me, my aunt didn't cry or show any other signs of weakness, though telling this tale must have felt like seeing her sister her midwifing partner, die all over again. Then I crossed your mother's arms over her heart and closed her eyes, Isa said, forever. I squeezed her hand. The sky had bled out all its light and there were no more upside-down mountains in the Black River. That's lovely. It's very evocative. It really communicates both the helplessness um, that people faced in, so often in childbirth and also, you know, her attempt to to respond to that, to, to act on behalf of the baby. Sure, yes. She, well, the, the midwife was really obliged. They had to get the baby out um, because, you know, there was this fear of, you know, leaving the child, the unbaptized child inside the mother. Uh, so, you know, apparently this did happen. <laughs> So when we next meet Eloise, she's still 11, and uh, she is indeed uh, a midwife apprentice. She's sent off to birth a baby uh, at the age of 11, which is quite a big challenge for an 11-year-old. What does this incident tell us about her? Well, she's she's forced into the situation, obviously. Um, you know, she she's basically a caring girl. Um, unable to ignore this person in their time of need, even though she has absolutely no no clue how to birth a child. She has seen it done before, uh, and children did, did witness births quite often, so it wasn't a totally alien uh, thing to see. She had watched her aunt uh, deliver babies before, uh, so... But, you know, she hadn't wanted to do it herself. Uh, she constantly refused to become her aunt's midwife apprentice because of this guilt for her, for her own mother's death in childbed. But then the joy, uh, luckily the birth is a very easy one and baby basic, basically, you know, births itself. So she really doesn't have to do much. But the, the joy that she feels after successfully delivering this child, as well as the village's admiration, make her realise that her future does lie in midwifery. This is the, the, the trigger that, that makes her decide she, 
she does want to follow her aunt and her mother's footsteps. So I think uh, we see that you know she, she's a determined young girl and uh, she's going to try and prove her worth, whatever the villagers think about her. So she makes a vow on her mother's soul that she will help anyone in need. And she makes this vow on the angel talisman, which has now been given to her, passed down from her mother. And this really determines the course of the book from then on, because it's this vow that eventually creates the conflict, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, So we meet her next in the spring of 1348, which to anyone who's taken a European history or world history course is an immediate sign that something really bad is about to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is essential for fiction. We must have really something very dramatic. says it all. And she is going to attend another birth, but now she's a full grown woman, and of course, she is the midwife. So, what happens during this second birth, which makes it so different? It's almost like a mirror image of the, the one we just discussed. Okay. Well, by this stage, yes, she's a grown woman of 24, 25, and she's been a midwife for quite a few years now with a lot of successful births under to her name. So she's confident and she's in charge of the situation. She knows how to deal with the mother, the newborn, the gossips, which are the, the female friends and relatives gathered around to, to help the mother, the birthing mother. So she manages not only to control this quite difficult birth scene because it's a very long and laborious uh, birth and there's complications at the delivery, but also the danger that's happening outside the cottage of this band of outlaws that have ridden in and uh, are attacking and ambushing the village. She manages to control that as well because, of course, all the women are panicking, and she's she's panicking as well. But she she knows that a good good midwife can't show. Um, any kind of uh, worry. She has to be seen to be in control, whatever the circumstances. So I think that's um, really what happens there. Mm-hmm. So you were a midwife. Eloise is a midwife, but midwifery is very different now from what it was in the 14th century. <laughs> How did you research medieval medicine uh, so that you could separate your own experience from the conditions that Eloise faced? Well, med- midwifery certainly is very different now, Carolyn, from the 14th century uh, in terms of the scientific and scientific and medical progress that we've made. But I think essentially it remains the same. You know, babies are still born the same way, women still face fear and pain, and it's still the midwife's job to alleviate that as much as possible uh, now as it was during medieval times. Uh, As for the research, it was fairly difficult to get any solid information because everything was a bit vague back then and filled with superstition. Apart from that, not much was documented, especially about childbirth, since men weren't allowed ever into a a birthing room, and most women couldn't write. So there was no no history, no journals or things like this. Uh, You know, we have a few things to go on. Um, I did come across a few old texts that were very helpful, but, um, you know, the... It all was really quite vague, 
Uh, I, I did read a lot of medieval fiction as well to get a feel for medieval birth scenes. I had the Trotula, which was pretty good, and a few other uh, midwifery um, textbooks, if you like, to use the word in a loose sense, from that time, because this uh, just after this time was really the birth of, of more modern medicine. So we have got um, you know references to 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 a lot of birthing a lot of births. Uh, although the the advice is conflicting. Uh, the records are conflicting. One book says something, another book says something completely different. So you're never really sure. You, you know, you just kind of have to make up your own mind about it and, and you know, as long as it feels right, you know what I mean? As long as it's plausible or it's possible, it could have happened. Um, I think, uh, you know, now, whilst now we lean on medical knowledge and expertise in difficult situations, all they had to rely on was charms and prayers and good luck, basically. Uh, the skill of the midwife, certainly, but there was a lot of good luck involved. And in fact, I did learn during my research that, you know, while it was dangerous and there were a lot of fatalities, you know, a lot did survive, you know, really. Many more than we think did actually survive it. Um, and also I think that while these days we have made it into a medical condition, childbirth, pregnancy, you know, it, it has become uh, kind of an illness, if you like, in inverted commas, um, whereas then it was seen as a, a completely natural process. And that's something we tend to have forgotten about in, in our modern day, you know, people are planning caesareans because it suits them and, uh, intervention on hand, you know, just to make life easy when, in fact, it can make the birth more difficult, ironically. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to go into, you know, a big midwifery lesson. <laughs> so let's, let's get back to, um, to to the big conflict now. Um, mm -hmm. The bandits attack the town, as you mentioned, these outlaws, and so the local count decides to build a wall around the town, and people who are familiar with medieval cities know that normally they do have walls around them for precisely this reason. Mm -hmm. uh, so Ralph uh, Stonemason, who is Eloise's husband and who has been off building cathedrals in Florence, uh, is uh, now going to be able to find work locally, and I should mention that being a stonemason is a very skilled and valued profession. Yes. in the 14th century. But, of course, this is the 14th century, so it's not like she can text him and say, come on home. So sure. how he, he comes home for other reasons, and the other reasons are the, the crucial experience yes. of the book. That's, that's right, yes. Well, in fact, the first outbreak of what we know now as bubonic plague arrived in Italy before, in, before France. Uh, so Raoul experienced it, its ravages in Florence where he was working and that's the reason why he fled the city. I mean, basically everybody was dying around him and his apprentice. There was no one left to pay the workers. Uh, building work had virtually come to a halt and he just wanted to get out of there. He wanted to run for his life, literally, and get home to the safety of his uh, village in France. But uh, unfortunately, as we know, he he most likely brought back with him another unwelcome passenger, uh, you know, on the on the back of a 
you know, a flea on the back of a, a rat. But, uh, you know, that's the question, you know, was it was it him, was it Rao that actually brought the plague to the village or was it this uh, the merchant that he, um, he got a lift back to the village in his cart with, uh, you know, it could have been either of them really, but it was probably one of them. Mm. And, of course, you know, or anybody else who came up from the South, because, I mean, the whole thing is that in those days people had no idea. I mean, it wasn't until the late 19th century that people actually identified the bacterium, but even before that they had no idea that it was going from flea to rat to people or rat to flea to people or, you know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So the two of them show up and... People start getting sick, and of course, nobody knows what's going on. There's, there's no news. There's no newspapers. They don't. No. There, there is our rumors passing along the trade routes of this horrible mm-hmm. sickness. But right. these are people whose primary um, approach to life is not just religious, but medieval religious. It's very mm-hmm. much based on superstition. Superstition, exactly. Yes. And so, how do they cope? Well, they they didn't really cope at all. They they were lost, they were bereft, and they had nowhere to turn except the church. Uh, they truly believed this was the end of the world. The end of the world was coming, and uh, and they could do nothing about it. Um, they thought this catastrophe. They put this down to the hand of God. He was punishing the sinners, so they prayed more. They went to church more, but to no avail, you know, it just kept killing people. Uh, so, and as a consequence of this, I think many of them began to question the workings of God and the church. You know, how could he do something like this to them when they were just praying and they were going to church and they didn't think they were sinning? How could he do this? And and that's, I think, why Eloise herself started to, you know, began to question the workings of God and the church and his actual hand in this disease. I, you know, she just found it hard to, to believe that, that God would um, inflict this kind of thing on them. And she began to think of how else or who else might have inflicted, you know, what it might, else might have caused it. So that's kind of a big turning point in her in her change in her mindset and which symbolizes the the people as a whole of course after this after the the uh, the first epidemic of the black plague but they also started looking for scapegoats and Eloise is vulnerable because she has this talisman and she's a midwife so she as you mentioned before she's kind of between two worlds in a sense yes that's right yes uh, they well she she was accused of um, well they they think it might be Heloise that that book that is actually working through the devil to punish well God's punishing the village but she's the one that's actually instigating the punishment she's cursing them with the disease or her or her pendant is they don't know but you know when when they the people can't understand uh, what God's doing, they need to find a human being, something tangible to to blame it on. So she seems the most likely suspect 
uh, and especially because, you know, I don't want to spoil the story, especially because of, you know, a few people that catch it that, you know, maybe are close to her and, um, and other people who she's, you know, probably her enemies that catch it. That's why, you know, they, she's the most obvious target to blame for it anyway. Well, yeah, let's not go too far into the story, mm. but the, but the central conflict of the story is that Raoul has come from Florence, and so he recognizes, he doesn't know that it's, the you know, he doesn't know that it's bubonic plague, he doesn't know how it's transmitted, but he recognizes the disease, which the French villagers don't initially, because they've never seen it before. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is, he knows how fatal this is, and, and you know, it's decimated the population of Europe. I mean, there were whole entire villages that were wiped out. And and so he's understandably nervous, and yet Heloise has taken this oath that we mentioned, that she must heal the sick. Yes. So until then, they've had a warm and loving marriage. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about how their independent characters deal with this problem, you don't have to tell us, the, you know, how it works out in the plot, but just how it affects them. Well, basically, you know, they, they both, as you've just said, Carolyn, they both have their own uh, uh, reasons for their, their, their own points of view. Uh, Raoul comes from, he, he was left without parents, without family, and he has carefully and lovingly considered well constructed is the wrong word, but built up the, his family like he sculpts his stonemasonry, and he wants to preserve that because they are the only thing he has in the world. So he's very, very attached to his wife and to his his child and and to her aunt. Um, so he absolutely forbids her to treat the victims, and. Uh, Eloise understands that. She understands why. But because she has taken this vow, because this is her calling in life, uh, she finds it hard to ignore uh, the sick. Uh, And also because she has become very independent while he was away for two years. So she um, is used to kind of being able to do what she wants. She hasn't had to obey a husband for the last two years. So she... she, um, you know, she obviously just wants to act on on what she believes in, and Raoul also understands her point of view. They understand each other's dilemma, but they're both strong and determined people, and they both stand their ground. So this obviously is going to cause a great rift in their relationship. Um, and the fact that Eloise has been alone for these two years, uh, when he finally comes back, she's not sure... She can go back to being the devoted little homemaker that Raoul expects of her. She's become someone different in those two years. She's become, uh, you know, um, a provider for the family and an independent woman. Well, as much as far as you can be independent in the 14th century if you're a woman. But that's the problem now that that they face, and that's what causes uh, the the great uh, rift in their marriage. So what would you like our readers to take away from Blood Rose Angel and from the Bone Angel trilogy as a whole? 
Well, first and foremost, entertainment, of course. <laughs> I'd like to think that through these, this story, the readers can take pleasure in escaping to another time and place. Um, and if they choose to learn something about history along the way, like, like I did, well, all the better. But, you know, definitely just for, for escapism and entertainment, definitely. So this book is just now being launched. It's actually going to launch officially in London on November 28th. And uh, do you, are you already working on another project? Well, that's a difficult question, Caroline. <laughs> I'm actually taking a few months off writing to try and get to grips with the business side of things, not to mention technology, which always seems to escape me. But I must say that life feels a bit pointless when I'm not actually writing a book. And I do keep getting these vague glimpses of some Australian family, a house, a beach, uh, some other kind of across-the-generation saga, maybe. Um, but that said, I, I really do love the medieval period now and the newborn, the, the newborn that comes out of the, the Blood, Blood Rose Angel story is starting to whisper things in my ear telling me that you know, he or she wants me to, to tell his or her story. So who knows if readers, you know, it depends on what readers' feedback as well. If they really want another another tale to the Bone Angel series, well, I, I might consider writing one. Uh, but uh, just, just for a few months I need to, um, you know, I, I, I've really spent two, the last uh, few years basically just writing and not, not really doing anything else. So I need to uh, sort of have just a few months break, <laughs> get life back together. <laughs> well, great. So we will be following your career with interest. And thank Thanks. you so much for uh, sharing your time with us today. And thanks so much for talking to me, Carolyn. It was really fun. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Lisa Perat, author of Blood Rose Angel. You can find out more about her at www. Lizaperat.com. That's L-I-Z-A-P-E-R-R-A-T. You can learn about Triskill Books at www.triskillbooks.co.uk, where you will discover both the catalog of their books and a link to their blog. Also worth following is the online journal Book Muse at http colon slash slash bookmuseuk.blogspot.co.uk, where the Triskill authors regularly review novels they like. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, which includes my social media links and connects to my blog. There I upload expanded posts about the interviews and to general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.